right, gang, good morning. Welcome. Take your Bible, if you brought it, and go to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. In the beginning of your Old Testament, there are five books of the law. We call them the Pentateuch. Uh, then come 13 books of history. So if you want to know the history of the Old Testament, you can read the first 17, 18 books, and you get the picture. I want to go to 2 Chronicles, one of those books of history, and the 14th chapter. Man, that was good music this morning, and I appreciate Goodbye. <laughs> and I appreciate it. Uh, it's a funny thing. I've, I've often thought about what it would be like uh, to get dressed in the morning, ready for work, or re- ready for church without a mirror. I mean, without a mirror, we've come to take for granted. We, the men, you know, they, they use a mirror to shave, uh, or some of us do. Uh, ladies use the mirror to, to put on their makeup. Um, Men use the mirror in the morning to kind of get themselves going. You know, they suck in their gut. They kind of primp and pose a little bit. Give you one of these. Am I the only guy that does that? Probably not. You just don't want to admit it. Uh, Funny thing about men and mirrors, in my estimation, men usually use mirrors uh, so that they can see what they want to see. Women typically use a mirror and see everything they don't want to see. Now, I grew up with a mother and a sister, and I've been married to my wife, Amy, for 30-plus years It seems to me that when a woman looks into the mirror, she sees everything she doesn't want to see. That's why they take so long to get ready. Men, when we look in the mirror, we love everything we see, right? That's because we're seeing what we would like to see. There was a uh, story I came across, men proving that men are more vain than I would typically like to admit. This patient, long-suffering woman had been married to this vain and arrogant man for many, many years. Uh, He loved to play golf and tennis as long as he could win because then he could brag to his friends. He was pretty successful in his work, so he would brag about his accomplishments, how much money he made, that sort of thing. They were coming out of the grocery store together. Now, when I was a kid, they had these. I don't know if they still do, but when we used to leave Publix uh, when I was a child, there was this big, giant scale. And you could step up on that scale, and out would come a card. It'd tell you how much you weighed, and then it would give you your fortune. Well, that's what this guy did. He steps up on one of those scales. Out comes the little, for, uh, the little fortune, and the fortune reads as follows. You are a born leader with superior intelligence, a quick wit, a charming manner, magnetic personality, and very attractive to the opposite sex. He hands it to his wife triumphantly and says, here, read that. She does, turns it over, and says, it got your weight wrong, too. Funny thing about men in mirrors, we see what we want to see. I think it's easier for a man to look into the mirror and disregard what pleases him because we focus on the part that we like. That's what I want to challenge you men to do today. I want to challenge you to take a look in the mirror, peer past the physique, peer down deep to the character. I want to ask you to examine your faith today, men. How intentional, how persevering is your faith? I decided to use the couple of Sundays building up to Father's Day, to talk to the men primarily at Grace Community Church because it's, in my humble opinion, it's never been more necessary, never been more important that real men of faith stand up and be counted, become present in our churches, lead in our homes, and stand in our nation. Men of faith are few and far between in our current cultural climate, and I think it shows. Now, your Old Testament, whether you know it or not, is filled with stories about real, great, and godly men of faith. Men like Abraham, we addressed last time. His grandson, Joseph, 
or great-grandson, I should say, Joseph. And then Moses. You can't forget about Moses. And then there's Caleb, and there's Joshua, and, and, and then there's Samuel, the prophet, and then there's David. Well, I have chosen a lesser-known king, one of the kings of Judah. His name was Asa. Asa. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that Solomon's son divided God's kingdom. Israel was fractured into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel, and the southern kingdom, retaining Jerusalem as its capital, was called Judah. In 950 B.C., Godly kings were few and far between. They were extremely hard to find. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that for every one good and godly king that drove or led the nation toward God, there were eight evil and idolatrous kings. In other words, for every one king that stood up as a man of faith, a man of intentional persevering faith, there were eight who did not. King Asa was the third of Judah's kings. He was a man of principle. According to our text, and we'll read it in just a moment, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of God. Asa led the people using his influence, his position, toward God, not away. Read with me beginning in verse 2 of chapter 14. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. See, told you. Notice that he did what was right in the eyes of God, not in his own eyes. Part of the problem with Israel and Judah at this point, one of the reasons they slipped so often and so repetitively into idolatry is because like our current culture today, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what they thought was best. Asa wasn't a man like that. Asa did what was right in the eyes of his God, not his peers, not his current culture. Verse 3. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. Now, these were pagan symbols of fertility that were used in the worship of Baal in the Old Testament. When God's people fell away from God and they turned to the prophets of Baal and and the God of Baal, they set up these places of worship and when Asa became king, he destroyed them all. He tore them all down. He didn't want the people distracted by pagan worship. He wanted to lead the people to worship that was filled with integrity, honest, sincere worship of the one true God. Verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. Verse 6, he built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. That's a pretty interesting, uh, simple statement. God blessed the nation under Asa's leadership because Asa led the nation in the proper direction. Now, man, follow me. He'll do the same for you and your family. He'll do the same for you and your business. He'll do the same for us in this church. When men stand up and lead in the proper direction, God is itching to bless that kind of intentional faith, the kind of faith that Asa demonstrated early in his reign. Verse number 7. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah. Put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. Watch this. This land is still ours 
because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he has given us rest on every side. Asa fortifies the city because they're at peace. They have the resources, they have the manpower to build up the towns, the hamlets, the villages. This is the sowing reaping principle on display. As Asa nudges the nation toward God, God continually blesses the nation. The sowing and reaping principle of Galatians chapter 6, don't make a mistake, is an eternal principle. There's not a bad experience out there for every bad action I do. However, overall, as is demonstrated here in this passage with Asa, king of Judah, when a man leads his family toward God intentionally with perseverance, God is itching to bless such leadership. So they built an altar and they prospered. Uh, Verse 8, Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah. Now here's what's interesting about this whole scenario as it unfolds. By the time we start with verse 8 and go to the remainder of the chapter 14, Asa did face one battle. He faced a battle against the Cushites or the Libyans. Now at that particular time, Asa's men were outnumbered. They were outmatched. Uh, They should have lost in dramatic defeat, but they didn't because Asa beseeched the Lord. Asa prayed on behalf of the nation and God delivered his people. In chapter 15, Asa continues this revival. He keeps pushing the people toward God. Now, incidentally, just because a king decrees the nation should serve the one true God, that doesn't mean that everybody in the nation does so. That is the importance of leadership, men. Just because everyone in the nation did not necessarily respond, and we know, frankly, that they didn't later in the passage, it's simply because there was someone willing to step up and lead, someone to lead in their home, someone to lead in their place place of employment, someone to lead in their community, someone to lead in churches. That's the importance of leadership. God kept blessing the nation, even though the whole nation didn't necessarily follow Asa's leadership, at least Asa was out there leading. There was, no, there was revival that continued. There was no more war in the kingdom for 35 years, if you can imagine that. No war for 35 years. Chapter 16 begins by telling us that Asa has been king now for 36 years, and he's facing an opponent. His rival to the north, King Basha of Israel, has set up an embargo six miles outside the city. Now, for the first time in a very long time, King Asa is threatened. The kingdom is under attack. Basha prepares for attack, but this time, rather than trust God as he had done before when he was grossly outnumbered against the Libyans, this time Asa turns to a pagan king beside him, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, that's what Aram is, part of Syria, and seeks uh, assistance from him. Asa took all the silver and the gold from God's temple treasury, and he delivered it to King Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad then flexes his muscle, and Basha, king of Israel, backs down. In the midst of that happening, Asa, the king, is confronted by God's prophet. Look at chapter 16. Turn to chapter 16 and look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer came, the seer or the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, watch, because you have relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, 
the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. So evidently, God wanted to use Asa's leadership to overthrow Ben-Hadad and Syria, at least Aram, as well. But now that's impossible because Asa has allied himself with Syria. Verse 8, were not the Cushites or the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? In other words, do you remember 35 years ago when God stood up for you, when you were greatly outnumbered? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. That's a very simple principle, men. When we rely on God, God blesses, God delivers. When we trust God because God is faithful in our home, because God is faithful with our money, because God is faithful with our health, when we rely on God, God always delivers because God is faithful. I love verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. One more time. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The way I would say that is God is looking to deliver. He's looking to bless. He's looking to encourage men and women who are intentional in their faith. You have done a foolish thing, Han and I said to Asa. From now on, you will be at war. Here's the big idea. It's in the program. I'll put it on the screen. God blesses intentional faith. God blesses intentional faith. Asa knew what it was to follow God. Asa had experience watching God work. Asa had been the hero more than a few times in his leadership. But here in chapter 16, something has changed. Asa begins strong, but sadly he finishes weak. Let me point out three simple principles, especially aimed at the men in this audience. Here's number one. When dealing with confrontation, look for a way through, not out. When dealing with confrontation, look for a way through, not out. Remember, Asa faced the confrontation of Basha, king of Israel. They set up this military embargo. He flexes his muscle and Asa cowers. He responds not by looking to God. He responds by looking to his neighbor, King Ben-Hadad of Syria. Having been bribed with huge amounts of money, huge amounts of silver and gold, Ben-Hadad then responds and the threat is lifted. But here's the kicker. Asa's plan to find a way out came at the expense of God's leadership and blessing in the kingdom. Did you get that? That's what Hananiah told him. Your desire and drive to find a quick way out, Asa, has cost you your leadership in the kingdom. It's cost God his leadership, and it's cost you the blessing of God. You see, often in our attempts to find a quick way out, we're not aware of what it's costing us. Our marriage is suffering, and in an attempt to find a quick way out, we don't realize what that way out is going to cost us. Not just our children, not just our family, not just our relationship, but our faith walk. You see, sometimes, believe it or not, God wants us to work through the struggle, not run from it. So often, so often, I watch men, full-grown men, Men who wouldn't back down from any challenge, but as soon as the circumstances grow dark, as soon as it's difficult, as soon as it's grim, they look for a quick way out rather than working through the difficulty. You see, sometimes our circumstance is part of God's learning process. That's what James chapter 1 is all about. 
James, the half-brother of Jesus, told his readers, you need to consider it a good thing when you go through difficulty. Because going through difficulty develops perseverance in you. It makes you strong. But perseverance has to complete its work. It has to finish its job so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Don't be too quick to search for a way out, men, because sometimes when you're in the midst of the struggle, you're exactly where God wants you to be. I can tell you from personal experience, I have never listened for God or watched for God or learned from God like when I'm suffering, like when I'm in difficulty, like when things aren't going my way. You see, we need a commitment to our beliefs about God, not what someone else says about our circumstance. You see, because God is most often working in the areas of our circumstance that are unseen. What somebody says about our situation that's obvious, man, you're in a tough spot, duh, I know that, that doesn't matter nearly as much, doesn't have near the impact compared to what God's Word says. God's Word says that He can take this difficult spot that you're in, you're battling your health, your marriage is on shaky ground, you're wrestling with problems and responsibilities at work, He can take that difficult responsibility, that difficult circumstance, and He can grow something beautiful in you using it. It saddens me. We'll spend thousands of dollars going to seminars to try to strengthen our building, our, our business. We'll, we'll, we'll invest thousands of dollars to try and uh, become more successful at what we do, but we won't take 30 minutes and pray with a pastor or pray with a good friend when we're making a tough decision. See, God's looking for men with an outlook that's optimistic, that's teachable, not hardened and stubborn. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of our MO, man. The older we get, the more hardened we become, the more stubborn we become. That's not what God is looking for. John Maxwell wrote many years ago, and it stuck with me, leaders are learners. When you stop learning, when you become unteachable, then you stop leading. So here's the question, men. How do you respond when you're confronted? If you find yourself in the midst of a struggle today, a dark and difficult circumstance, you need to understand that it's often during that difficulty that we hear the voice of God with clarity. That's why circumstances and difficulties are so valuable in the hands of God. That's number one. Here's number two, dealing with correction. When corrected, listen for the voice of God. When Asa was corrected by the prophet, he refused to listen to God, and that's what cost him. God spoke to Asa through the prophet Hanani. Hanani said, your failure is in that you refuse to rely on the Lord what he's done in the past. You haven't learned from your experience. In chapter 14, Asa was all about relying on God. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 14 and verse 11, listen to his prayer before he faces the Libyans. He prays, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we've come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Man, I'm looking for men in this church who will pray like that. God, who are they to stand against my family? Who are they to come against my business, my company, my work? Who are they to stand against our church? But this time against Basha, Asa sings a different tune. Amidst his struggle, he's overwhelmed. He's gotten older. Maybe he's gotten more comfortable Maybe he's lost a lot of his energy. Regardless, he refused to listen. A few years ago, the Barna Research Group did a very interesting survey across America. Of thousands of men they surveyed, they asked the following question. 
Is religion very important in your life? Is religion very important in your life? Here's what's fascinating. Those men who made twenty to $29,000 a year, 69% of them said, yes, religion is very important in my life. Those men who made thirty to 39000 62% said, yes, religion is very important in my life. Those men making forty to 49000 a year, said 61% of them said, yes, religion is very important in my life. And those making sixty grand or more a year, only 45% said, yes, religion is very important in my life. It seems that among American men, the more you make, the more affluent you become, the more successful you are, the less you sense a need for God. My friends, that's not intentional faith. It seems that accomplishment, annual income, they diminish our need for God. Let me tell you something. As a pastor, it is a beautiful thing. And it's why I care so much about the men in this audience, the men in this church. It is a beautiful thing to watch a grown man, a godly, strong, real man of faith, humble himself before God. Asa wasn't about to do it. When he was corrected, he refused to listen to the voice of God. Many, many years ago, I was still a student in Chattanooga, Tennessee at Tennessee Temple University. I got a part-time job at the Brainerd Hills Baptist Church. I was the student minister and the choir director. Okay, I'm 20 years old. I'm still wet behind the ears. I had no ministry experience. I was basically filling in until they found someone that could be hired full-time. There was a man who called the, the church and asked to speak with a minister. He thought he would speak to the pastor, but the pastor was out of town on emergency business. So here comes this man and his wife to the church, and the secretary t- brings them to my office. Okay, I'm 20 years old. This guy's as old as my parents. Okay, he had kids of his own that were in their 20s, and they were having marriage problems. I mean, they no sooner sat down, and I could read his face. He's saying, what am I doing talking to this kid? What does this kid have to offer me? And so I decided, because I didn't have a lot of experience counseling adults, I had worked with young people up until that point, that I would just listen. I would just sit there and sort of listen. And so I did. It became obviously, painfully obvious to me, almost immediately, that what this guy really wanted was for me to side with him against his wife. Okay? He thought he would intimidate this young minister, and I would side with him, the man of the house, against the woman, right? As the man continued to tell his story, and they began pointing fingers at each other, he started talking about an illness that his son faced many years earlier. And as he described that illness, and, he de- and as he described how he felt, and the fear that consumed him, tears started welling up in his eyes. His voice began to quiver. He described an illness. He described how he and his wife would pray for that child, how he would hold that child in his arms at night before they'd put him to sleep. And when I saw that emotion on his face and I heard him describe what he knew about listening to God, I seized that opportunity. And I said, it sounds like you were listening to God back then. How come you're not listening to God right here in this circumstance? I imagined at that moment he was going to flip me the bird and walk out the office, right? But he didn't. He actually got very emotional and he broke down. He apologized to his wife. And I became one of his little buddies. His name was Nick, Nick Bowman. He didn't sing a lick. He didn't have much of a voice at all. Couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but he joined the choir. And every time I would stand there in church and lead the choir, I'd watch him and he'd bless my heart. He couldn't sing. In fact, I had to tell him a few times, hey, tone it down just a little bit. Okay. 
But man, the look on his face, he believed every word coming out of his mouth and it inspired the audience. Eventually, I went to work for this man and still to this day, until he died several years ago, that man was a very important influence in my life. It's a beautiful thing to watch a man humble himself and listen to God. So question, men, how do you respond when you're corrected? How do you respond when you're corrected? How do you respond when a friend, somebody you love, your wife, tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, you need to think about that. You need to consider that. Few are the men who, when corrected, listen to the voice of God. Here's number three, and I'll try to wrap this up. Deals with conviction. You know what conviction is? It's guilt. It's knowing deep down that I've crossed a line. I've missed the mark. When convicted, you should swallow your pride. Did you notice the indictment at the end of verse 9? Asa, Hannah and I said, from this moment on, your kingdom will be at war. You've done a foolish thing, and from now on, all you'll know is war. It's terribly ironic to me that the very thing that King Asa was trying to avoid, because he refused to trust in God, became his destiny. He was at war until he died. At the end of that passage, verse 9, uh, excuse me, verse 10, it says, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He didn't like the message from the prophet. He threw him in prison. If we fast forward to the end of Asa's story, Asa dies a bitter, arrogant, angry king. And God knows we don't need any more arrogant men in this culture. Real men with persevering and intentional faith. They're humble. They're not proud. They're teachable. They're not hardened. They're open. They're not closed off. So again, the last question, how do you respond to conviction? Man, when you know that you've crossed the line, when you know you've said something you shouldn't have said, when you do what you promised yourself you'd never do again, how do you respond? Asa hardened himself, refused to listen, When he was confronted, he looked for a way out. Get me out of here. God says, no, that's the wrong MO. You ought to look for a way through because I'm using the difficulty. I'm strengthening you. I'm building you. When he was corrected by the prophet, he refused to listen to God. And when he was convicted, when he knew he had done wrong, he was unwilling to swallow his pride. Let me leave you with 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, one more time. This promise is as good to you as it is for us, uh, as it was for him back then. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. That means God is intentional in looking for these kinds of people to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's my prayer as your pastor, it's my prayer that men of grace would stand up, would rise up and be counted, be present in our churches, be involved in leading your homes, and stand up in our culture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a real-life story of a real man who started strong but, but finished weak. Father, may it challenge the men in the room today. May we, may we question the kind of legacy we wish, wish to leave to our children, to our families. God, take these men. Make us leaders in our home, Father. Make us present in our churches, Father, and make us, help us stand up in our culture. We pray it in Christ's name because of our faith in him. Amen.
God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.